Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. The Victorian government recently pledged $5.3 billion towards social housing with the aim of opening up 12,000 additional homes in the next four years. The move has been welcomed by many in the sector who have been calling for more investment for years. But just how effective will this be in meeting the needs of those experiencing or at risk of homelessness in this state? A new report from RMIT and Unison Housing has shed a much-needed light on some of the circumstances and experiences of social housing tenants. While the need for more housing is undeniable, the findings suggest that more could be done to address the specific needs of those in precarious housing situations. To help us unpack these issues, we're joined by two of the researchers behind this report, Dr Sarah Taylor and Dr Juliet Watson. Sarah and Juliet, thanks very much for coming on Triple R. Thank you. Good morning. And Sarah, we'll start with you. This report is the first of a five-year project looking at this issue. I wonder if you can explain the rationale behind this study and what exactly it is that you're seeking to find. Thanks, Dylan. So um, we've been working on this study for a while. So the fact that it's come out, our baseline report has come out now, it's just um, good timing, but also emblematic of some of the issues with social housing. They're certainly in the background, whether we choose to notice them or not. So the Maximising Impact Study is a longitudinal study of social housing tenants and it's part of the Unison Housing Research Lab, which is a collaboration between RMIT and Unison Housing, which is a social housing provider. So we're following tenants over a a longer period of time. Uh, um, It's more common in social housing when there's not a lot of supply and there's a lot of energy put into rationing uh, who can get into housing, that there's, there's previously been a lot of information of how many people are on the waiting list and how much housing we actually need. And at that point, we don't really know a lot of what happens after that or exactly who is in social housing. You'd think it would be quite easy to find that, but it's it's actually not as obvious as it seems. So we've interviewed 170 uh, new tenants for Unison Housing and we follow, follow up with another interview a year later and then a year after that. And the first report that's come out this week is looking at um, the, the background of these new tenants shortly after they've moved into their tenancies. And that includes um, how long they've, they've had a low income, whether or not they've experienced homelessness and what kind of homelessness they did experience and other sort of just basic background characteristics that we know from other research will impact on tenancy sustainment and tenancy satisfaction. Um, I, I don't know if it is well known, but... Um, as much as there is a lot of demand for social housing, not all social housing tenancies last as long as, as they as they probably should. So there's definitely a real need to understand how to, to make tenancies uh, satisfactory and how to sustain them for, for a longer period of time. That's really interesting. And I wonder, Juliet, if you could talk to us a little bit more about... Um about the the way that you do the actual surveys because it seems like a pretty straight up thing to do is to ask people questions around how satisfied they are but I understand it's not common to do this how do you actually go about asking those questions of people? Yeah, it seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? <laughs> Just ask people what their experiences are. But uh, we found with undertaking this research that um, 
actually not a lot is known about tenants who are living in social housing. A lot of assumptions are made, but, you know, unless you actually go out and speak to people, you, you don't really know their stories. So I've been involved with the project since the beginning and, you know, we drew up a, a survey, a questionnaire, um, and it was... I guess as simple and as difficult as going and meeting people in their homes, new tenants who had recently moved in. So that could be anything from having just moved in a couple of days ago to up to about three months and just really getting uh, their history, their housing history, where they'd lived before this, in particular, how many times they'd moved in just the last year, um, how many people were living in the house, their employment history, um, maybe histories of trauma or violence that they'd experienced, um, income, family background, just all sorts of histories about them so that we could get a picture of the kind of people who are getting access to uh, social housing. And I guess what we found was that this is a severely disadvantaged group in the main. Um, you know, we were expecting, I guess our preconception was that people uh, came from difficult backgrounds. But once we started to really pull the data together, and Sarah can speak to the data more specifically, we found that this group is severely disadvantaged across all sorts of measures. Yeah, and Sarah, I wonder if you can just kind of paint a bit of a picture for us of exactly what you found, and I guess the extent to which there were common experiences and, and common characteristics across the people that you surveyed. Thanks. So um, the, the common experiences for the tenants in particular are low income and uh, labour market disengagement and housing instability. They had a lot of other differences, like different ages, different backgrounds, different experiences of violence and, you know, health levels and things like that. So there's, there are a lot of differences, but there's, there's a really common core of long-term low income and, and very low income in many cases and long-term housing instability. So we have a lot of people, actually 90% are dependent on government payments and for many, um, they've been on Newstart or it's equivalent for, for many years and that's an amazingly low income, um, which really doesn't cut it in the private rental market. Um, we've had, um, again, there are, there are many differences between the tenants and we know that they will impact on tenancy sustainment, but um, on average over eight years on government payments and um, on average over three years since they've had a permanent home. Yeah, it's interesting to have those commonalities when you say, you know, as you say, there's there's so many different people in this group because you are picking people that are new tenants so that they, they weren't, mm -hmm. I understand, picked by, by other things. But, I mean, until now, what did housing providers know then about their tenants? And it's interesting that Unison is going down this route, Juliet, to find mm -hmm. out more. Um, what do you think this might lead to with regards to the services and the kinds of housing provided to tenants now knowing a little bit more about them? Ah, well, that's interesting because we are just about to start on another study which is looking at the support needs of social housing tenants. So this has come out of this broader study um, and now we look more specifically at those needs. What we do know is that social housing in Australia and also across other um, like countries that offer social housing in the same way is that it's become a form of um, what's called ambulance housing, that is you're servicing the people in greatest need. And this is one of the reasons we have enormous waiting lists for people to get in social housing. Um, you know, previously when, uh, you know, post-war Australia, when housing, social housing was being developed, it was seen for, it, it was really aimed at uh, 
people who were working but were on lower incomes but didn't necessarily have these other difficulties going on in their lives. But as we've seen this attrition of available social housing, it is people who have, I guess, the most complex histories moving into housing uh, that are getting this accommodation. And alongside that, if we want people to be able to retain their housing, we do actually need to look at what those other support needs. Um, do, do we need to look at people being linked in with health services, with mental health services, with drug and alcohol support, while not ever forgetting that the key reason people are needing to access social housing is poverty. And unless we look at income inequality, we're not actually going to be able to alleviate the situation. Speaking with Dr Sarah Taylor and Dr Juliet Watson, they're both based at RMIT and speaking about some new research they've been part of that uh, has involved surveying um, a whole bunch of social housing tenants. And this comes as the state government has pledged some $5. billion uh, towards social housing in this state over the next four years. And, I mean, it's it's often been said in this sector and also it comes out in, in your report, I noticed, that one of the sort of absolute key things um, to address um, homelessness or, or people at risk of experiencing homelessness is providing dwellings, is, is kind of giving people a roof over their head. But there were also some other aspects around the extent to which people feel part of a community and connected with others as well. And I wonder what your sense is of, of how we can best do social housing into the future you know we're no longer doing the big sort of um, projects and, and towers as we did um, sort of you know many years ago but it has been said that people living in those sorts of areas have had a kind of sense of community um, what's sort of the state of, of that and and how can we best make sure that people who are living in these types of places can be connected with others Sarah do you want to maybe talk about rooming houses in sure. relation to that yeah yes, I think that's yes, really that's relevant a bit of a- a pet topic for me, but uh, it's it's a really interesting topic. And of course, adding more housing is is absolutely the most important thing to add to add to that situation. Otherwise, you have a lot of people scrambling for a really limited supply of housing, and that has all kinds of other really unpleasant side effects as well. Um, so, if you don't add more housing, then it's a bit of a zero sum game, and you, you can have you know people on low incomes sort of pitted against each other for housing, which is unpleasant by any measure. The other aspect of it, just the raw aggregate numbers is is the type of housing, the design of housing, and the other fascinating thing that comes up in this kind of research is that the building itself says a lot about what we what we think the housing should do, what we think the people should be like that live in there, where we want them to be, so that the big housing blocks, um, you know, in their own way, say a lot about what the purpose of that housing was as well. You know, they're kind of over there, they're nice and clean and clear and, you know, not necessarily part of uh, middle-class suburbia and so forth. So really taking on board the fact that, that buildings themselves are a statement and that they do have an impact as well, uh, I think, and, and help going forward with, with social housing. And, of course, listening to what works already um, is, is pretty basic logic. Um, we know that people leave certain places a lot earlier and one of the standouts of those is rooming houses. So um, we know that when there hasn't been enough affordable housing and combined with high, high poverty, we have rough sleeping. And another perhaps less visible aspect of that that sort of absorbed a lot of that demand when, when, the, when the stock wasn't there has been rooming houses. Um, in particular, private rooming houses have really um, proliferated in Melbourne over the last couple of decades as much as community housing providers have, have um, you know, decided against rooming houses. Um, 
private rooming houses are very common and they've been growing over a long time. And they have a really basic design issue that people share kitchens and bathrooms. And in theory, we'd say that should be fine. You'll be fine. But it's it's different if it's a share house where you have shared values and social capital and, and you get along and you have the kind of way of, of, of sharing those spaces. But when people are forced together and they're forced to, to share um, spaces like kitchens and bathrooms over and over and over again, it has a really negative effect and it tends to make people quite quite scared and quite um, uh, not, not feeling at home. And we see that repeatedly in the attrition rates from rooming houses. People leave rooming houses all the time, at, at least before 12 months, perhaps even earlier, and probably for very good reasons. So that's just one example of it, but we'll see um, the design come through in other aspects of social housing. Uh, flexible design is usually a good thing, but um, as we know, the tenants come from different backgrounds. Some are younger, some are older. Um, what will work, and of course, some people have had experience of violence. What will work for one tenant might not work for another. But we do know that forcing shared spaces is not a great thing and that, you know, you should probably hope for the best and plan for the worst, try to make something work in the long term and, and find out what has gone wrong or gone right in the past. And, and what, what I would I was just just going to say, um, following that, Juliet, I wonder if um, <laughs> there is something around where we where we locate some of these dwellings. And I mean, as Sarah's talking about there, the kind of dwelling makes a difference. So, mm. you know, rooming house is quite different to some of the, the dwellings that we've been hearing about from the mm. government since the announcement, which is secure facilities, women and children only type facilities in middle suburbs where these these dwellings haven't um, traditionally been located. Do you think the kind of different perspective we're hearing this time round with with um, public housing investment is going to make a difference? I think so. Look, I'm you know we won't know until we have more information, but I'm cautiously optimistic about the plans that it, that we're hearing about so far. I think one of the key things that came through from our research was the high proportion of single households that were living in rooming houses or that are unaccommodated. This is a group that tends to have been neglected. Um, when it looks at social housing, there there's nothing really available for them in public house. Sorry, in um, private rental housing, which means if there aren't purpose built places for singles, then these are the people who are going to end up in the rooming houses. Now we have the same thing. We need. Uh, specific built places for families, um, for families with young children, for couples, for big families. So as Sarah was saying, flexibility is really important. I am excited about um, the proposition of building social housing in that middle range of suburbs that's being talked about. We've seen very high density public housing in the past in the inner city, so we're seeing more of a move. At the same time, thought needs to be given to people being connected to services and broader communities when you do look at the locations of social housing. Um, we've done previous research looking at the idea of neighbourhood effects and mixed tenure, which is the idea that if you mix different social groups, there will be a transferal of the benefits of those who um, are more well-off onto those who are less well-off. The jury's kind of out on that a bit at the moment as to whether that actually works or if that's successful or as we've tended to see in Melbourne you get the gentrification of inner suburbs so people who've traditionally lived there tend to feel pushed out but you know um, it's an exciting time I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what is 
proposed with the money that's coming forward for social housing. Um, it's the biggest announcement since uh, the federal announcement in, back in 2007 under Kevin Rudd for money being put into housing and homelessness services. So it, it is an exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really important research you're doing. And hopefully some of those recommendations out of your reports will feed into that, mm. um, those projects coming out of the state government as well. Thank you so much for joining us today on Triple R and, um, and sh- shedding some light on, on what you're doing. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Juliet. And um, if you want to find out more, it's the Unison Housing Research Lab that, um, that those researchers are working within. And we look forward to more reports being released over the coming five years. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And I'm very pleased to say we have Don Watson back on Triple R this morning. A, um, a collection of his writing and speeches is out now through Black Ink called Watsonia, A Writing Life. Uh, we've got Don on the phone and uh, welcome, Don. Good morning. Good morning. Nice title. What's on here? A suburb? <laughs> not my idea. A flower? Not my idea. <laughs> a, idea. <laughs> a collection of your writing. Um, I mean, many of our listeners will have read one of your books or an essay or heard a speech you've written. How did you decide to um, what to include in this book, which is um, very much a collection of, of writing from, from um, many decades? Well, to be truthful, I, I didn't have much to do with it. I left it to Chris Fike at Black Ink, who um, is the editor of Quarterly Essay and I've worked with before. And um, We discussed a couple of things. We, you know, we, let, we decided at last to leave out an epic poem about Queensland I once wrote, which I was slightly disappointed about, but it didn't really fit. It needed music behind it anyway. <laughs> um, um, one or two, I should say that the speeches are not uh, are ones I've given. There, no, there are no speeches in there that were given by other people um, for fairly obvious reasons now. Um, and uh, no, it was, I suppose it was sort of trying to choose those which were acceptably good or, you know, of a reasonable standard, uh, but also get a spread going back uh, 45 years or so. So some of them are probably a little... Um, um, underdone owing to one's youth but um, you know um, I found it quite interesting in the end to see what Chris had done and um, you know not too much embarrassment but some yeah, well, what what was your experience of going back and, and reading some of these pieces? Because there are some that, that I read and had to kind of double-check when they were written. One that comes to mind is a piece on the ALP in 2003 that kind of seems like it could have been written yesterday about the kind of nature of poll-driven politics and, and that sort of thing. Did you feel like you would all would correct or, or change many of these pieces if you were writing them now? I no, I, I probably change a lot of sentences, but the but the um, the sympathies are, are surprisingly consistent. I thought um, I'm not sure that they were the right sympathies, but they, there is a sort of I can see a sort of line. Sometime in the 1980s, I fell for the fashion for humour in a big way. Um, and a lot of you know, I wrote a lot of columns. Then I have a regular column for one or two newspapers, and I'm not. I discovered I'm not really a columnist, but I also discovered that 
And there was a sort of craze for humour in Melbourne at the time. You know, you had to find the irony in virtually everything. Um, um, and I was a little embarrassed by that because it just wasn't very funny, some of it. Um, it was a bit forced. So I got over that anyway. It's funny how humour... Uh, there's a sort of... Uh, there's a, a, a relatively forlorn period in my life, so I'd, maybe that's why I was looking for things that were... Funny. I don't know why I was forlorn. I had no good reason to be. I just was. <laughs> Happens to people, doesn't it, really? It does. And I, I mean, I, I echo what, what Dylan just said about um, some of the sort of writing in here and, and I mean you f- reflect on American politics and America um, in, in some of these pieces and uh, there's a line in there that says the blind will no longer lead the blind and this is about the Obama victory sentences will be whole again and truth will reign in them and I just thought that could be written now as well which is um, but obviously a very different political era that we're exiting and, and Yeah and, and I think I was being a little ironic there anyway <laughs> <think> so. you <laughs> know but we felt the same you know for the first three hours after Malcolm Turnbull knocked over Tony Abbott but uh, by the next morning the truth was dawning again yeah, I mean, if we can just get tweets that are that are whole again, then I think that'll be an improvement on what we've seen in the US over the past four years. But I mean, you have written quite a bit about the US um, in in your sort of uh, your essays and and a book as well. I remember seeing you speak once some years ago and describing your attachment to the states as being akin to stealing your parents' car and tearing off down the highway. That's how I remember you describing it anyway. Um, and it's kind of a mix of you know freedom rebellion and excitement but also a kind of sense of danger what is your relationship to the united states and why have you found the the need or desire to write about that country that's it's an interesting question i ask myself every now and again what it is uh, there's there something um both juvenile and epic about america it's a it's, it's a country that's never in some ways has never quite grown up mainly because it it can only exist through the agency of myth you know it, it has to keep telling itself a story to hold itself together and in a way what trump has done is to sort of lever it apart you know trump took the political maxim whatever it takes and really did do whatever it took that is you know he said well i, I know these divisions exist so i'm going to get a, a chisel into all of them and push them so far apart that there'll be no putting them back together again and I I think that that sort of tension in the United States is, you know, at a, at a, if you like, an intellectual level, interesting. At a visceral level, it's it's the um, the, the, the sort of endless reproduction of ideas, and then and you drive around seeing it played out. It's like you're you're never far from Hollywood, wherever you are. You've you've seen something like this in the way the Americans have told the story to themselves and the rest of the world wherever you go whether it's a some abysmal down at heel cafe in Arkansas or or you know in, in some freeway in LA or wherever there's a and there's a it's the deeply provincial side of it that in a way sort of both fascinates and chills you to the bone in some ways, I think that's America's biggest problem, that it is so provincial. It, has, it, it believes it is, whoever you are, whether you're a liberal in Brooklyn or, or a hospitality worker in, in Wisconsin, 
you tend to think that America is where the world begins and ends, which is why when they talk to you, they're not at all interested really in where you come from. It's, it's rather, oh, it's very hospitable, but they, the attitude is generally, well, what took you so long? Now you're here, this is where life is. And this means that they find it very hard to compare themselves to the rest of the world. And I think, you know, the, the lunacy about COVID in a way, you know, it can be explained by this, that, that they simply don't know that there are other ways of doing things. And on the on the Democrat side, sure, but they're still, they're still not comparing themselves to other ways. They're listening to science, but it's possible not to believe in this and to believe in conspiracies instead. If you don't know that, for instance, Vietnam has had 35 fatalities from COVID, or that if you don't, or that Australia's had very few as well, or... In the same way, they can. You know, it's so easy to say that you know Bernie Sanders is basically a communist, and um, when in fact he's a Rooseveltian New Dealer. Uh, so it's terribly hard, terribly easy to lie and frighten people in the United States because they really don't have a lot to compare it with. And do you find? I mean, as a as in your writing life, um, Don, um, is travel important to that? I mean, you've spent a lot of time on the ground in in the US observing and, and speaking with people. Um, is that vital for you to be able to, to write? To, to it's a, if I had, you know, if, I, if, if certain things hadn't turned out differently, I think I'd still be sort of hunting around the US describing figure eights all over the place. So, I, yeah, I do find it. Um, I don't know whether it's essential to writing, but it certainly helps, as it does historians, which is really where I started. You know, that if you don't, if you don't see the place, it's hard to get a, a feel for what it once was. It's the same in Australia. I think you know, it trying to see through, you know, the European built landscape to what it was before is a, a, a sort of essential first step. We're speaking with Don Watson all about his new collection of writings called Watsonia, A Writing Life, and it's out through Black Ink. And, I mean, that sense of, um, of I guess, a national story that you're describing in the United States and the way that is kind of um, reinforced or kind of echoes around, um, you know, a whole range of communities and, and cities and so on in that country. I wonder how you, you kind of feel about the, the role of storytelling or mythology in the Australian context, because you write in one piece um, about uh, Paul Keating, of course, you were, you know, his his speechwriter, and that it was storytelling that made Keating an effective reformer. How do you see the role of story or, or kind of storytelling in our political leadership at the current time? And I guess as reflected in the nature of the, their speeches that they give. Well, I don't think anyone's in any doubt that, you know, that modern politics, probably politics at any time is, is a case of whoever controls the narrative controls the reins of power. You know, it's, it's essential to you know, any successful government or political party and I think probably in recent times I, I don't think either party has had a very powerful story to tell but Labor has really been uh, has really struggled to find a a convincing narrative, and that's partly because I think there are two reasons. One, after Keating's great defeat in 1996, they they wouldn't touch him with a barge pole, and they completely lost touch with the successors of Keating because they wouldn't mention his name, and that meant they lost touch with themselves. 
but I think the other thing that has come awry in more recent years is that the, the economic rationalism, if you like, or the, the, the market economy, which Labor swivelled toward dramatically in the 80s and 90s, has come rather unstuck. And um, Labor's found it hard to come up with a narrative that um, swerves away from the, the market economy um, back towards something which is um, going to really ring true with um, the electorate. And I think also that an awful lot of people in the Labor Party uh, find it hard to think beyond these sorts of ideas. I mean, it feels to me like the Labor Party should needs to take a very long retreat and walk around you know, for a few days and see if it see actually what it believes because for a long time now it's it's not really told the tale of belief. It, it, it lacks any sort of philosophical basis. And it's now, you know, it, it's the split at present between, you know, the pro the pro fossil fuel lobby and the rest of the party is crueling it. But it's not really the only problem for the Labour Party. It, it it needs a philosophical position that leaps over these these divisions, I think. Um, and I think it underestimates what what the public will um, accept. You know, this the, 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 and, and the sort of poll driven, message driven notion of politics doesn't suit them in the end. You know, Keating won an election in 1993. He went to the people with a platform of a republic, um, a reconciliation. Um, he even had an arts policy in there. You know. Um, he had he went in nineteen ninety three with a really radical position on a lot of things, um, and they voted for him. Mind you, they had John Hewson not to vote for. But if you, you know, it's surprising what people will take on um, if they think you believe it and you're you're, you're articulate about it. When, when where do you see the culture wars as starting, Don? They started personally for me in 1988 when we put a musical on in Melbourne based on Manning Clark's History of Australia and we got run over by the Murdoch press as if by a team of bullocks or something. Um, we got slaughtered in a way that caught us completely by surprise. You know, we weren't expecting necessarily favourable reviews, but we got um, belted from one end of the place to the other. Um and that, you know, then that led on to a, a really bizarre assault on Clark even after he died. Um, I think they began in the 1980s when the right, in this country at least, became concerned that Labor had stolen the narrative. And so they went back to Australian history to try and find an alternative view of it. Um, revisionist historians were probably in the ascendancy. So the, the sort of black armband history assault and um, the, the idea that, you know, that expressed by John Howard repeatedly that, you know, that 
the left were sort of, they hated their own country, or they were, um, you know, befouling the Anzac legend, and all these sorts of things. I think it began as a, as a, a as an effort on the right to get back the ground that Labour had stolen from them. In other words, it was a consequence of Labour outflanking them, um, ideologically. It's interesting to be talking about the culture wars um, right at this sort of current moment in history, I suppose. Um, I mean, you mentioned the sort of Anzac mythology there and, and in the wake of the Brereton Inquiry and all the things that have been revealed about Australians, special forces, um, soldiers abroad. And I mean, it has been a bit of a sort of taboo for a long time, at least um, in the mainstream media, to talk negatively about Australia's soldiers and, and war efforts abroad. But we've also seen the ascendancy, kind of a renewed form of um, reactionary right-wing politics coming off the back, no doubt, of you know Trump's ascendancy and, and Brexit in the UK and, and that sort of thing. Where do you see the culture wars sort of going at the moment and, and how can they be sort of put to bed or, or moved through in a constructive way? I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've found them the most, you know, the most depressing theme of the last 30 years. I've, they're infuriating because they've, they've are plain stupid. You just can't. It reduces everything to an argument from faith, and you, you and the faith is built. It seems to me on nonsense, including nonsense about history, as if it's no longer, if it's as if it's contestable in some areas but not in others. So Anzac is no longer contestable. So when that journalist came out with, with a tweet or something on about this behaviour of Australian troops in Egypt a few years ago and Turnbull beat him up and SBS sacked him and you think this is this is insane. The fact is and as far as the SAS is concerned, I was I remember being in Washington in two thousand and five and and what they call it a Washington insider came over to me. He was on the Democrat side, he was opposed to the war in Iraq. But he came over and he said, You're SAS, my God, they're a bunch of you know they're very good at their wet work. You know, he knew that what the SAS were doing then. So it's impossible to believe that the head brass of the military didn't know this was going on. Because other people did know. Similarly, if you know anything about Australian, the reputation of Australian soldiers in, in the 20th century, including in the First World War, in fact, very much in the First World War, they had a reputation on both sides of the trenches for not taking prisoners. And there's plenty of evidence of that. Um, and and in New Guinea, there are stories, stacks of stories about certain acts carried out up there. And in Vietnam, if you don't think the Australian intelligence officers weren't doing stuff in Vietnam, well, again, we haven't been listening. Now, that's not to say that you know we are a wicked bunch of people. It is to say that our war history has taken on a mythological form, and it's and it's to say that we don't understand. We we, we haven't been gained to understand what the nature of war is, and what military training does to people. And that's that's not to say that we shouldn't train people in military skills and we shouldn't have an army or anything else. Just to say, be brave and face the consequences of this, just as we have to face the consequences of battle on soldiers returning on PTSD and this sort of thing. That mm. if you, you know you send people to war at great risk to their health, <laughs> that they might get shot and they might come back different people and they might do things over there that they've got to live with for the rest of their life.
Mm, we could speak to you for another hour about this issue alone, Don, but um, we are just about out of time. But I mean, you in this book, you um, you write about your sort of, you know, uneasy relationship with being a writer and sort of questioning that title that's, that's so often attributed to you for, you know, obvious reasons. Um, and that, you know, you have this sense that one day you might be found out and have been on this kind of, you know, 30-year bender <laughs> um, pumping stuff out into the world. But I mean, how does writing sit with you at the moment at this point in your life and and I guess what sort of um, writing projects are you sort of uh, still part of or, or looking to, to focus on into the immediate future? Um, that's a big question. Um, I think it gets harder every year to, um, I mean, I, I think you have to keep reading as, as much as you possibly can if you're going to write, otherwise you might begin to think that you're better than you are. Reading good writers keeps reminding you of how far you are off the pace and um, it makes you more conscientious if it doesn't make you too depressed to write at all. Um, I'm working on a book that I sort of began researching about 15 years ago about a Vietnam veteran and anthropologist and a community in um, in uh, northeast Arnhem Land that I've been to several times with him um, and that he's basically looked after him to do a PhD, an anthropology PhD, and ended up really staying for 45 years. Um, so that's a long, grim, interesting story that's got to be finished by March. Um, I've got a, a rewrite of the kids' uh, history of Australia for young folk. The Young and the Curious, I think they built it as, as a rewrite of something I did in the 1980s. So I keep scribbling away, um, but it, you know, I don't know how I ended up doing this. I would be just as happy to wander around in the scrub but, um, <laughs> and reading good writers, you know, but, um, here I am. Yeah, well, we're all the better for it. It's um, it's a absolute um, pleasurable read looking back over a bunch of your writing over the past number of decades, and um, it's been a, a great treat having you today on Triple R. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Cheers, Thanks, Don. Don yeah. Watson and his book uh, Watsonia. Um, not named after the suburb, <laughs> but it is anyway. What's only a writing life, and um, you can get it through all good bookstores, and uh, it's out through Blank Ink. Triple R. You cannot say that you can't hear about climate change and you're not getting the up-to-date science on Triple R because we're doing our best to bring it to you. And uh, right now we're going to be speaking with Joelle Gerges. In fact, she's an Australian climate scientist who is part of a working group producing the next UN IPCC report. She is close to the science. She is helping us and the next generation of climatologists understand it. Uh, but as she writes in the latest Griffith Review, the work is tough, it's unrelenting, it's emotional and it's never been more urgent and she's here to speak more about it with us um, and about her her latest essay and it's great to have you with us, with us um, Joelle, welcome to Triple R. Good morning, thanks for having me. And um, we don't often use the words emotion and science together um, but in this essay for Griffith Review called A Season of Change you explore this area among other things and, and you've also looked at this in previous work as well. How have you come to see emotion in your work as a scientist, Joelle? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's something I've been grappling with over the past 
couple of years as I've been involved with the IPCC process because I've realised that just having an intellectual understanding of something doesn't necessarily compel people into action. And I came across this really... Um, you know, poignant quote by Rachel Carson, uh, who wrote Silent Spring, which is a really famous environmental book, and it says, it's not half so important to know as to feel. And I remember when I came across that, something really struck a chord with me where I realised that as a scientist, we want to throw more facts and figures at people. But then I realised that it if we don't actually care about our connection with our planet and each other and the natural world, then really we're not going to get much movement in this area. So I think I realised that it was a bit of a missing piece of the puzzle. And also the fact is, is that I and many of my colleagues were having a, a deeply human uh, response to the work that we uh, are in front of every day. And so it sort of feels a little bit disingenuous to pretend like we're purely these um, machines of rationality and, and that's all. We're actually human beings. And I think it's um, really important, I think, for people in my position to start to be a little bit more, um, I guess, honest and upfront about the, um, the emotional toll of the work, just how serious the situation is. And I also realised that people with far less experience and knowledge are very um, quick to jump in, into the space and, and, and fill that um, you know, gap, if you like, in, in the public conversation. So for me, I feel, even though it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because it's not traditionally what we do as scientists, uh, I feel that the situation is now uh, really that, that bad that we do need to start speaking out. And you've written about this before, not just in the, the current edition of the Griffith Review, but in a um, very sort of widely read and widely commented on um, essay in the monthly as well. What's been the response from some of your colleagues in the science community about writing so kind of emotionally about these issues? Well, when I published that essay in the monthly earlier this year, I was really anxious, to be honest, and I was really qu quite concerned about putting myself out there emotionally. But then I started receiving emails from people from all different sorts of disciplines, um, you know, professors of physics uh, and, and also IPCC colleagues. And I had a colleague who contacted me and said, thank you for writing that piece. You know, you put into words something that a lot of us are feeling but we're too afraid to talk about. And then I realised that I had tapped into something that a lot of people feel, but not many people are prepared to, um, I guess, express that in a really clear way. And I think that the response from uh, senior people in my field, um, you know, very esteemed research careers and all that sort of thing, coming to me saying, thank you for writing that piece, that made me feel that although I do feel a little bit uncomfortable with... Um, putting myself in a position where people could, uh, I guess, um, criticise me for, for bringing uh, myself into my work. But I think that, as I said, things are getting to the point where uh, I think it, it, it's really it would be doing the broader community a disservice to not be honest about what we see. And again, I came across another quote that um, I really like, um, which is by uh, the American civil rights activist uh, Rosa Parks. It says, knowing what must be done does away with fear. And I put that right near my desk and I look at that every day and I try and remind myself that although I do feel, um, you know, a little bit out there in terms of um, uh, saying the things that I say, but always, always my work is grounded in the fundamental science. So I don't feel uncomfortable about any of that aspect of my work, but I suppose I, I am learning to, to be... Uh, 
I guess, more comfortable and, and perhaps more honest about our emotional response to, uh, to being a climate scientist at this very fraught moment in, in history. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's interesting, and you write in this essay and also in other other essays you've written, uh, Joelle, that if we had doctors that didn't show emotion when they were um, working with patients, uh, I mean, we, we, we want that human connection with those important scientists in our, in our day-to-day life, d- dealing with particularly very serious health conditions that we might have. And I think also, you know, with leadership, we do ask that leaders bring their whole selves to to work and all these sorts of things, but climate mm. science has been put in a different category. Do you think that with the work that you're doing and, and also others connecting in the way that, that you are with with um, audiences and with individuals talking about the worries that you have and what the science is telling us might happen, do you think that we might start to see that shift and these that you won't be put in a separate category as a client, climate scientist? Yeah, that's a really good question, and that's why I like to use the analogy of, of medical practitioners because no one would begrudge a doctor for feeling a sense of empathy or despair when they see a patient of theirs in a really dire situation. And as climate scientists, we're effectively taking the vital signs of the planet, piecing all of this together, and we get a sense of the fact that we are in in a, a really um, there's a there's an emergency going on. It's an emergency scenario. It is not something that is just on the slow burn uh, that we can just ignore and let it sort of play out as it does, I think it's really important that um, we realise that I think, unfortunately, climate science has been very politicised for a range of different reasons, but ultimately we are dealing with, um, you know, fundamental issues of science, so physics and chemistry of the atmosphere and the oceans and the way that we alter them through human activity. And so that's actually the fundamental truth of climate science is that it's based on, on the physical sciences. And so all of these other overlays, which are more coming from a political point of view, have been really, really unhelpful um, in the decades that have passed. And, and now we're at this point now where people like myself are really feeling the need to, to try and be as clear as we can be about how serious the situation is and also the opportunity that's there because I know that it can be very overwhelming to feel a sense of dread and despair about um, the state of the world right now and that's a very natural and human response to a, a very challenging situation. But I think my, my, my understanding of where I'm at with it at the moment is that when we, we'll do something when we care about it. I think unless we start to... If you lose emotional contact with the things that really matter, would be the, the natural world, the people around you, then you become really disconnected from, I think, um, something that's deeply human. And I, and I think that um, now more than ever, we need to be reconnecting with each other in our communities, um, in our nations and all over the world. And I think my IPCC um, experience has, has been uh, life-changing in the sense that having to work from people from all over the world makes you realise that there is this really altruistic element that I think exists in most people, that most people just want to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing by their families, their kids, their planet, um, their communities. And I think that tapping into that is um, a really abundant resource. And I think sometimes um, there's a lot of other misinformation and and confusion that that muddies the waters that I think I really hope is starting to... um, we, We need that sort of thing to move out of the way. 
Mm. We're speaking with Joel Gerges, award-winning climate scientist and writer based at the Australian National University, all about her essay in the latest Griffith Review. The essay itself is called A Season of Change. And um, I mean, as mentioned, you work with the IPCC, uh, IPCC, so you're up close to kind of what's happening to the planet and, and the nature of the approach that's being brokered to attempt to address this crisis. And I mean, we're aware that um, we need to kind of up the ante big time if we're going to have any hope of keeping warming to um, within the, the, the sort of two degrees um, cap or even more radically if we want to keep it to 1.5 degrees of warming. How do you kind of, uh, or what sort of level of hope do you have that we can sort of, you know, substantially shift what we're doing to meet some of those targets given that we've sort of, you know, really struggled through a combination, as you mentioned, of misinformation and the kind of short-termism of the way that politics tends to function? Yeah, another really great question. I think it really comes down to people having all the facts on the table to begin with. So in terms of the Paris Agreement targets, we would need to triple our emission pledges that are currently out there from different nations around the world uh, to get to two degrees and increase them fivefold to get to 1.5. So that, that's the stark reality of the challenge that we face. So that policy challenge, as Ross Garneau talked about over a decade ago, is a diabolical policy challenge. So that is the reality of, of the situation we're in right now. And um, the the, um, the policies that are in place right now would see the planet warm by around 3.4 to, say, 3.9 degrees or 4 degrees by the end of the century. Now, clearly, that is not a, a stable planet. That is not a, a scenario that we want to see play out. And so we really need to start to have these urgent conversations. I mean, these are things that a lot of people who have been in this space for a long time um, are starting to get frustrated with because I think it's, it's you sound like a broken record or you certainly feel like one. Um, but I do think that there is really encouraging progress that is starting uh, to to be seen on, on the international level. We've seen uh, nations come out with net zero emissions targets by 2050 with the UK, the EU, Japan, China, New Zealand. Uh, I think that it's possible. And also here in Australia, um, all Australian state and territories now have um, net zero emission targets um, uh of net zero emissions by 2050 in place. So we don't have a federal policy because of a whole range of political, uh, I guess, um, deliberations that I, I won't elaborate on here. But the fact is, is that it's inevitable that the world will go this way. The world is already going this way. And the progressive regions and communities and businesses um, already see the need for this to happen. So I don't... I think it's a, it's a case of... Um, Change is on the way. I think it is absolutely happening, but it needs to be fast and it needs to be widespread. And I think that's really the perspective of, I guess, working at that UN level, realising that there are a lot of great people all over the world and it really is just tapping into that very best part of humanity that understands the right thing to do at the right moment. And I think it's really a case of um, not allowing ourselves to really get stuck in a state of paralysis and despair around this stuff because there are a lot of really good news stories around the world in this space. We only even have to look to New Zealand, a leader like Jacinda Ardern. That gives me hope in terms of, you know, she formed a really inclusive cabinet, a science-based climate policy. I mean, the woman's amazing. And I think that it's just a reminder that there are a lot of individuals and leaders and people all over the world who want to see this happen. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge task and I think it's going to take this, this social tipping point and I think it's already underway 
Um, and we, but we need that critical mass to keep building um, because really every day and every month really matters. Yeah, and I guess we've seen Joe Biden, President-elect, say that the US will rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement and also the UK's Prime mm. Minister, who will, um, UK will be co-hosting the climate negotiations next year. Boris Johnson has called Scott Morrison, we know, to urge um, more urgency of action here in Australia. But I, I sort of wanted to talk about the next generation with you in the, mm. in the small amount of time we've got left, Joelle, because we did see students hit the streets in protest over, you know, really a sustained period of time until the COVID pandemic um, changed that and you know of course people couldn't do that any more safely anyway um, mm. um, but you also interact with the next generation of climate um, scientists and climatologists what's your sense of what's coming next because you also um, really uh, talk about you know disconnecting of, of, of youth from from their elders in science as well maybe you can sort of give us your view on on you on how hopeful you are for the next generation of, of action actors yeah I, yeah I, I think it can be a complex issue I think sometimes people are on their screens a lot and they can be a little bit disconnected from each other and also, um, you know, in the university context, I think a lot of people feel like they don't need to go to class because, you know, it's online, they can get the lectures. But I think that some of the most profound insights and wisdom have come about from the face-to-face contact with the elders in my community. And I guess as, as somebody um, who teaches at an Australian university, it's really important that I try and pass that on. And it's terrific when you get good students who, who really get it and um, really understand the work, and that can be very inspiring. But then sometimes when they don't turn up it makes you feel like it's a little bit hopeless because um, here we are trying to throw everything we've got um, at the next generation trying to help equip them Uh, but I understand there's a lot of competing um, uh, things for their attention and I do understand that so I think there's there's a case of some people becoming really disengaged uh, and others that think that you know the online world is the only world and and I think that's also part of the issue that I think if we lose this emotional contact with the natural world and and each other through just an over um, exposure to screens and, and disconnecting from life that's out there, um, I think that becomes um, you know a really fraught situation. But but I think that I think there is hope, uh, and I think there are some there are some great young people who are doing amazing things. But I also feel that there is a sense of despair amongst many of them as well, where they do feel like things are out of their hands, and that's where I really get a sense that it's it's so important that we start telling these stories around the good things that are happening in the world. So it's not all just doom and gloom. I really want to make sure that your listeners understand that. I'm sure many people out there know that there are things happening in their own communities and, and things like that. So I think we've got to get better at telling the stories of, um, of change and change being something to embrace, not to be afraid of. So I think that the challenges are there. Um, but I think, um, I think humanity, we can do it. We can. And you can do it too. I know that you're working on an IPCC report deadline with your colleagues from around Australia and also all around the world. So all the best with that work, Joelle. And um, thanks for taking the time to speak with us on Triple R. Thanks for having me. Joelle Gerges, uh, she is an Australian climate scientist and you can read her article um, called A Season of Change. It's an essay actually for the Griffith Review, the latest one and, and um, the whole um, Griffith Review number 70 is called Generosities of Spirit and um, it is a really beautifully written piece and yeah, maybe we are indeed in a season of change. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.